The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. All right. I have been told that I am reviewing too much. So, I'm going to try to review a little less. But it is somewhat important that we make sure we're all on the same page before we get going. All right? So, I'm going to try to do a little less so that you won't complain, but we'll, we'll, uh, we're still going to do a little reviewing, right? All right, so, uh, remember the historical context of 1 Peter is built around this idea uh, that the early church, these Christians he's writing to, are facing persecution and are about to face uh, persecution like we can't even truly understand or grasp, right? It's not just that adults were suffering, right? Their children were suffering. Their families were suffering, right? This is an immense amount of suffering and persecution this church is facing. And this is an important context for us to remember, especially for what we're going to be studying this morning. Uh, and again, bringing us back to Peter's purpose in 1 Peter 5.12. He says, I've written you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it, right? That, that what enables us to endure the suffering is standing firm, remaining firm in the gospel. That's, that's the challenge that Peter is issuing to these Christians. That's the challenge for us this morning, too, is that we would remain steadfast in the gospel, that as suffering comes... As we endure persecution as the church, that we would remain steadfast in that. All right? And remember, he begins with uh, this idea of, of building confidence in your salvation, right? The Holy Spirit works in your life. You can look back and see how God has been changing you and sanctifying you, and that builds a faith within you, right? You can know, I may not be exactly where I want to be today, but I'm not the same person I was a year ago, right? And that builds confidence in you and strengthens your faith in God because who else could do that in you but God, right? And so proof of salvation of the Holy Spirit working in you builds a confidence in God and that enables us to stand firm in the gospel and remain even in immense suffering and trials. This is what Christianity really looks like is that because we can look back and see God working in us, it strengthens our faith, our faith, and we endure suffering. We live our life for Christ. We abandon our desires. We abandon our comforts. We abandon our security for the sake of Christ because we've been changed by Christ. And then Peter tells the Christians here to arm themselves with Christ-like understanding. He says that Christ suffered that he might bring you to God, right? The, the suffering that Christ endured was for a purpose. He gave his life for a purpose, to bring you to God, to build his kingdom, to bring glory to God. His life, his death, his resurrection were all for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom, and that should be our mindset. As Christians, that's what we focus ourselves on. We're living our lives for the glory of God and building his kingdom. And two weeks ago, we talked about the difference between being alive in the spirit, which is a biblical doctrine, right? If you profess Jesus, the Spirit comes in and lives inside of you, makes you alive with Christ, right? That's a biblical understanding that we can know in our minds, but then there's a practical aspect of that in that we walk in the Spirit, right? If you're alive in the Spirit, you should walk in the Spirit. Your life should, be, should look different. And so we talked about some characteristics uh, that, that, that um, we're really walking in the Spirit. 
There's a spirit-filled mindset, right? We have this idea that the end is near. We're living for our future hope and glory. We're not living for the circumstances of life now. We're not living for money. We're not living for job promotions. We're not living for our kids' sports and making sure they have a fun life and vacations and all that. We're living our lives for our future hope and glory. That's what life is all about. We also talked about spirit-filled love, that as the body of Christ, that we maintain constant love. And what does that look like? It looks like hospitality, opening your home to one another and serving one another. And then we talked about the spirit-filled pursuit, that if we're walking in the spirit, then the glory of God is, is our everything. Right? If you're walking in the spirit, then the glory of God is your everything. That's what you live your life to, for. That's what you've devoted yourself to. So all of that, your salvation and spiritual maturity, aiming yourself with Christ-like understanding and walking in the Spirit, all of that is, is what Christianity really is. And hopefully you can see the difference between that and what many professing Christians are living like in 2021. Hopefully you can see that there's a difference there, right? That most professing Christians in 2021 are living for self, we're living for ourselves. We're living for our own financial gains. We're living for our own glory. We're living for comfort. Comfort has been the God of the church for so long. And hopefully we can see this contrast of what Peter's talking about. That the, the, the real Christianity, real faith, is surrendering your life to Jesus and, and living for his glory. That's what real Christianity is. Christianity is not some doorway to health and wealth. It's not some ineffectual social club. It's not some event that we attend once a week. Christianity is a lifelong devotion to Christ, born not out of self-righteousness, but out of the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit and dwelling in those who have surrendered in faith to Jesus. That's what Christianity is. And if our Christianity is genuine, if we're truly saved, then suffering, while we may not enjoy it, isn't something that will overcome us, but rather something that refines us. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we read. So let's look at verse 12. It was significantly less recap. I just want you guys to notice. I looked at the clock, a lot less recap. All right, let's look. Verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when the glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. All right, so our time together this morning, we're going to look at four things that Peter teaches us about holy suffering. Right? Remember, holy just means set apart. We as Christians have been set apart to be holy. So what does our suffering look like? It looks like different than the world, right? So number one, we should expect suffering. We should expect suffering. Look at verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. All right? 
It never fails. It seems like all young couples, when they get together, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, there's this idealistic distortion that they think everything is just going to be awesome for the rest of forever, right? Cameron and Madison right now, our student guy, they're they're on their honeymoon, right? They're living in idealistic distortion, like on on uncharted territory right now, right? They're thinking life's going to be amazing. And we all know, those of us who have been married for a little bit, we know that next week's going to be way worse than this week, right? When she realizes he leaves his clothes on the floor and doesn't put them in the dirty clothes, it's going to just, it's downhill from there, right? And it's always funny because they're so surprised at the difficulties of marriage, right? It's it's like this this amazing, like, they they had no idea that it was coming. You know, in their minds, they were different. They had this different relationship than everybody. They had this, this uncommon bond that nobody else, right? And, and, and then when the, when the testing comes of the marriage, it's like, man, I, did, I just didn't see this coming, you know? I didn't realize that he snored like a bear all night. I just, I didn't realize it was going to be like this, right? And there's a testing of love and devotion that takes place. And the question that, that you have to answer yourself in those early days is, can I endure this, right? Right? Can I endure? We, we try to combat that with, with premarital counseling, like, you need to decide now are you going to be able to endure these things because he's not who you think he is. When you, when you live in the same house as him, he's going to be a different person, right? And, and, and that test comes. The question ultimately what we're asking is, is my love and devotion for this person genuine, right? Because if your love and devotion for that person is genuine, then yes, you can endure those things, right? Peter says, don't be surprised when the test of suffering comes. You have devoted your life to Christ. Right? If, you, if you're a Christian this morning, that's what Christianity is. We've, that's why we had to go back and review that. Right? We've got to build on that. You've devoted your life to Christ. You've committed yourself to him. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes. Don't be surprised when the testing of that faith comes. Fiery ordeal is this idea of purging metal uh, from impurities. It's this idea uh, of, of refining metals. Right? So many people have this incredibly distorted view of Jesus in the gospel. Listen to me this morning. Jesus never, not once, he never promised to fix your life. I know that there are some flashy looking preachers out there on TV that will tell you that so that they can afford the jet that they want. But that's just not true. Jesus never promised that. Even after coming to Jesus, your health crisis might still be there. Your marital crisis might still be there. Your family crisis might still be there. Listen to me this morning. Jesus is not a means to an end. He's not someone that you go to and say, my life is in shambles. Jesus, please fix all of these circumstances. That's not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that as you endure the suffering of life, that Jesus is there with you. That's the promise of the gospel. And and that he will change you. He will change you. Not necessarily your circumstances. He will change you. Not only did he not promise to fix your life, but he actually promised suffering and persecution. Take that for a world leader, right? Like, hey, you guys follow me, and it's going to be really rough. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that people are going to hate you, they're going to beat you, they're going to kill you, all because you follow me. 
That's the promise that he made, right? Let's look at it. John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's the promise. Jesus says, look, they hated me. You're my follower. They're going to hate you. It makes no sense for us to expect anything else. John 16, Jesus says again, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Right. Suffering and tribulation are part of the Christian life. If you're living out your faith in a real and authentic way, you will be persecuted. Jesus promised it. He was super clear about it. It doesn't get much more black and white than that. And then we've come to this conclusion that we can live this comfortable Christian life, right? We can come and sit in our padded pews and enjoy the air conditioning and go about and live our life for ourselves, and there's no ramifications for it. That's not how this works, right? If you've truly surrendered your life to Christ and you're living for his glory and you're living this Christian life that we've been describing, there will be suffering. There will be tribulation. In the early church, baptism was not quite what it is today. Right? We have baptism. You come over here. You get dunked in. You get a free shirt. You take your picture. You hold your sign up. Post it on Facebook so everybody thinks you're cute. This is not how it was in the early church. Right? Remember, the context of all this, professing Christ was claiming allegiance to Christ and not to the Roman emperor, which meant... Death, persecution, suffering. So when believers in this day and age would go down to the river and be dunked in the water, what they were doing is they're publicly proclaiming their allegiance to Jesus and not to the Roman emperor. They're publicly standing up and saying, I am a Christ follower and I'm willing to pay that price. Today... We got people that won't come to church when it rains or when it's sunny for that matter. We have no idea what suffering is. No idea what suffering is. We have no idea what true devotion to Christ is. Peter says, if you're walking in the Spirit, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes to test the authenticity of your faith. Don't be surprised if it's something unusual that was happening to you. Listen, you say that you're a Christ follower. Christ suffered. That's what you signed up for when you gave him your life. So if following Christ brings suffering, why would anyone follow Christ? Why would anyone follow Christ? Why would we sign up for suffering? Well, Peter answers that question next in verse 13. He talks about joyful suffering. He says, instead, rejoice as you share in sufferings in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
You guys remember when your kids and your parents would cook something you didn't like? Let's, let's, let's say meatloaf, right? Meatloaf is something maybe adults like, but most kids are like, that's, no, I'm not eating that. I'm not eating that weird meat pie. That's disgusting, right? I think I was like 32 before I would actually try meatloaf. But as your kid, your parents slop that stuff on your plate, set it before you, and then they have the audacity to get upset when you're like, I can't, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't eat it. I can't do it. I just, there's something, I will, I will, throw, the, I will throw that up, I'm sorry. Something about the consistency and the way it looks, I just can't do it, right? We get upset when our kids don't do that, right? And what do we say? This crazy, unrealistic thing that we, say, we tell our kids, you're going to eat it and you're going to like it. Right? Have you ever said that? Yeah, you're guilty too. You've said it. You're going to eat it, and you're going to like it, right? How crazy is that, right? It's like, okay, I get that you have authority over me, and you can force me to gag this thing down, but there's no way you can force me to like it, right? (laughs) Peter says, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. How does that make any sense at all? I've got to suffer and I've got to rejoice about it? Nobody enjoys suffering. What is Peter even talking about? Well, first, he says we can rejoice in suffering because we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Paul writes about this as well in Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Look at this. And I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When we suffer for the glory of God, That's when we're most like Christ. You want to be like Jesus? You should if you're a Christian. That should be something that we strive for, that we're aiming towards. Jesus suffered. If we're genuine in our love for Jesus, we're going to desire to be like Jesus. And when we suffer, we're identifying with Christ and his suffering. And we get to be most like Christ in that suffering. So we rejoice because it's in suffering that we can truly identify with our Lord and share in his suffering. That should be something that we desire, something that we want to be like Jesus. Second, we can rejoice in suffering because the test proves something to us. We talked about this in week two of our study in 1 Peter, in, in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, rejoice so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. You know, you're a kid and you're in a class at school. Your teacher gives you a test, right? What's the purpose of that test? To assess how much you've truly understood the material, right? And it's not so much for you to understand the material so that the teacher can be able to ascertain how much you've understood, how much knowledge you've gained, so that they can make sure that you're 
on target to, to understand the material of the class, right? So they give you a test, and they're, they're evaluating you how much you've gained, how much understanding you've gained. The testing of our faith that comes from suffering does not exist to prove anything to God. He already knows the sincerity of your faith. He already knows if you're sincere in your love for him. The testing is proof for you. If you endure suffering for Christ, you prove the authenticity of your faith, which brings peace and joy in your mind and soul. Listen, one day every knee is going to bow. Every, head, every knee is going to bend. Every head is going to bow before, before Jesus. And, and everything, all of creation is going to attest to the supremacy of Christ. Anybody who before that day in their hearts had already bent their knee and bowed their head and surrendered to Jesus as Lord, that day's not a day to fear. Right? There's no condemnation on that day for those who have already professed Christ. And so for us who have already professed Jesus, who have already surrendered to Jesus as Lord, when that day comes, there's no fear for us. And suffering, enduring suffering, proves that your faith is real. It proves that you've truly surrendered to Jesus. And so you can live your life with confidence, knowing that Jesus is your Lord. Peter says, rejoice now in suffering so that you can rejoice on that day. In other words, your suffering now brings joy because it proves that your eternity is secure. Third, we can rejoice in suffering because it brings intimacy with God. He says, if you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Even in the midst of our suffering for Christ, there is blessing because intimacy with God is a result. We see an example of this in the stoning of Stephen. Right, Stephen, the first martyrs that we see in Scripture, he's preaching, he's doing ministry, he gets seized and brought before the Jewish leaders, and instead of defending himself, he uses that opportunity to preach the gospel. Right? We pick up in uh, Acts 7, verse 54. It says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They didn't like what he said. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Talk about peace. Right? In the midst of suffering, here's this unbelievable peace that Stephen gets to experience. Look at what it says. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. So mental picture, la, 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 la. That's what they're doing, right? Like a crazy person. They're covering their ears. They're screaming so they can't hear what he says. And it says, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's suffering was a blessing. And it brought joy because it brought intimacy with God. Even in the midst of being stoned to death, Stephen has joy. Why? Because God's spirit is with him, because God reveals himself to him in that moment, and there's this intimacy like many of us could never fully even understand. It's this beautiful picture of God being with Stephen in that moment. So the question, the question here is what do we value? 
What is important to you? Do you desire intimacy with God? Do you want to know him and be in a relationship with him and have that level of intimacy that we're talking about? Can, can we view suffering as a blessing because it draws us closer to the Father? Can we see that? Can we get beyond the idea that suffering is scary and get to the point that, man, I, I'm, I can rejoice in suffering because it means I'm closer to God? So suffering is something the Christian rejoices in because it's how we can identify with Christ. It proves to us the genuineness of our faith, and it brings a deeper intimacy with God. But is all suffering we face in life something we should rejoice about? He gets into that next, verse 15. He says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a, uh, and if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Um, several years ago, we were living in Lumberton, and we had this little brush pile that we would burn every now and then. We'd stack it up, stack it up, let it get big, and then burn it. And uh, usually I'd have a little can of diesel to pour on it, set it on fire. I was out of diesel. And I was feeling a little lazy and didn't want to go get diesel. So I got the gasoline. Poured the gasoline all of the fire, did a little trail, and was trying to light it like that. Some of you who are, you're understanding what's about to happen. So I flicked the lighter. And at first it wasn't going, so I took a little step closer. Tried again, still wasn't going, got a little closer. At that point, all the vapors around that big brush fire caught fire, and I was engulfed in flames. And I just started screaming like a little girl, running away from the fire. I mean, my neighbors probably thought something was going. I burnt my leg, like, really nasty right here. Like, big old giant hole, like, to the point to where when I pulled the Band-Aid off, I would rip it off, skin would come off with it. Like, it was really gross. Um, and, and, And all of that was just purely because I was an idiot. Right? It had nothing to do with just bad luck or anything like that. It was just pure negligence, pure stupidity on my part. Right? Like, who, like you should, you, that's like everybody knows you don't put gas on something and light it on fire because it's bad. Right? Gas blows up. We know that. That's something they teach you when you're, like, you're a little kid. Davis knows that. Right? And, and yet here I am, a 30-year-old man trying to light gasoline on fire. Like I deserved what I got is what I'm saying. Um, Peter uses this opportunity to clarify that all suffering is not created equally. There is some suffering we should be ashamed of. He says, don't suffer like a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. When we sin, there are tangible consequences. Those consequences aren't the suffering Peter is talking about. If you murder someone, your imprisonment or death penalty is not suffering for Christ. If you cheat on your spouse, the suffering that that decision brings is not suffering for Christ. If you're a meddler and always stirring up strife, the loneliness and suffering that that brings is not suffering for Christ. A lot of times we like to wallow in our suffering and self-pity, right? Well, that suffering that you're facing sometimes has nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with your own stupidity, right? Just like playing with gasoline. Right? When we sin and we wallow in sin and that brings suffering in our lives, that has nothing to do with suffering for Jesus. It has nothing to do with what Peter's talking about. 
Instead, he says, suffer as a Christian. There's no honor in sinful suffering. There's no reason to rejoice in that. You bring that kind of suffering on yourself. But for those who suffer as a Christian, in other words, those who suffer for the sake of Christ, there's honor in that. He says, don't be ashamed for the suffering that comes. Don't be ashamed to be in prison for the cause of Christ. Don't be ashamed to be beaten for the cause of Christ. Don't be ashamed to be mocked for the cause of Christ. There's honor in that kind of suffering. Instead, glorify God in that name. You know that Christian was not always a term of endearment. Right? Christians weren't like going around saying, I'm a Christian. That was what the culture at that time the word that they use as a derogatory term to make fun of Christians. It was not always an endearing term. It was a term born out of ridicule and mockery. And Peter says, wear that word with honor. Wear it with honor. Glorify God with that name. There's honor in suffering for Christ because our lives are all about the glory of God. Right? We're building, we're building something here. Right? We started with all of these ideas and getting our mind right and all that stuff, focusing ourselves on the glory of God so that we could get to this point. That the idea of suffering for the name of Christ brings glory to God. Peter says the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What in the world does that mean? If there's no condemnation for God's people, then why is Peter saying judgment starts with God's household? Right? We know in Scripture it says there is no condemnation for people who profess Jesus, for those who have a relationship with Christ. But here, Peter is saying that judgment begins with God's household. Let me try to illustrate this for you. When I discipline my kids, it doesn't always look the same. Right? Sometimes I issue a punishment for a certain behavior. They do something, punishment ensues, right? Let's say they talk back to their mom. I'm going to issue a punishment for that behavior. That is punitive judgment, right? Their choice leads to some kind of punishment. That's not the only kind of discipline that we give out as parents, though, right? Other times, I discipline them by forcing them to mow the grass and to mow it right. Right? I've even forced them to go back out and do it again because they did a terrible job the first time. Right? That's not punitive judgment. I'm not disciplining them because they had bad behavior. I'm disciplining them because I see characteristic traits in them that aren't very healthy, and I'm trying to help them grow as a person, right? I'm trying to instill a good work ethic in them. Do you see the difference? This is refining judgment. So there's punitive judgment, and there's refining judgment. What's Peter talking about? In the Old Testament, God's household was the temple, Right? God resided at the temple. We see this same idea talked about in Malachi 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, to his household. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit 
as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This is exactly what Peter's talking about. Now, we are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives in the hearts of believers, right? The Spirit of God dwells in the hearts of true believers, and our suffering serves as a refinement, not as punitive judgment, but as refining judgment. God uses suffering and persecution as a way to sanctify us for his glory. He uses a refining judgment to burn away the things within us that are sinful and dishonoring. And Peter's essentially saying that suffering begins now with God's household, with the church. The church will endure suffering now, and as bad as that suffering may be, as bad as that refining judgment may seem, it's infinitely better than the eternal punitive judgment that those who are outside of the household of God will face. The refining judgment that we face, the suffering that we face, as God works in us and is refining us and molding us and shaping us as uncomfortable as an experience as that may be, it is infinitely better than the punitive judgment that the people outside of the household of God will face one day when they stand before God. Peter's saying earthly suffering may seem bad, but rejoice because it means God is refining you into the person he wants you to be, and that refining judgment is so much better than the punitive judgment that the lost will face in eternity. As believers, we can rejoice that the sufferings we face in this life are the worst we'll ever face throughout all eternity. This life is as bad as it gets for us. We've seen the worst, but those who reject Jesus Christ have seen the best of life their eternal existence will ever see. That's the point Peter's making. He's quoting a passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 11:31, that the righteous will be repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and sinful. This is a sobering truth. Our refining judgment now is for our own good. It's purifying us. The punitive judgment that comes for unbelievers is something genuine Christians don't have to fear. So we should expect suffering. If you follow Jesus, expect suffering like Jesus did. Not only should we expect it, but we should rejoice in it because it's the best way we can identify with Christ. It proves to us the authenticity of our faith, and it deepens our relationship with God. And as bad as refining judgment may seem, it's so much better than punitive judgment, which leads us to the final point, verse 19. Entrusted suffering. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing What is good? As I'm issuing refining judgment on my kids and forcing them to mow the grass and to do the dishes and to build certain character traits within them, to make work hard at school and make good grades and to to spend time in the Word and all the things that, that, that we as parents try to instill in our kids, as I'm issuing those things, my kids don't like it. Right? They don't like it when I say, hey, you did a terrible job mowing the grass. Get back out there and do it again. In fact, I would venture to say that they hate it. Now, they're not bold enough to say that to me, but I can, it's all over their face. Right? They're not happy about it. But the truth is, I'm not doing that because I'm angry with them. I'm not doing that because uh, I want to punish them. I'm doing that because I love them. And I'm doing that because I want to instill something in them that I think is so incredibly important. This is exactly what's happening. This part is so important in all of this. Suffering is not 
something that's easy to rejoice in. I get that. It's hard for us to see the reasoning. It's hard for us to trust that God is acting on our behalf when we allow, when he allows suffering for his children. But let me remind you, Romans 5, 8. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, God has nothing to prove to you. He's already proven it. He's already proven his love. And that while you were a sinner, and that while you had rebelled against him and turned your back on him, he sent his son to pay the penalty for that sin so that you could be reconciled back to him and find life and life abundantly. He has nothing to prove to you. That's why Peter says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator. God's already proven his love to you. Trust him. Yeah, you're going to go through suffering. Trust him. Trust him with that suffering. Endure it with faith because God has already proven that he is good. Notice what he says. He says that God is a faithful creator. So first of all, God is faithful. I've already read these verses. We're going to read them again. Psalms 31.3, For you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me for your name's sake. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord God of truth. What, what does all this language communicate? God is our rock and our fortress steadfastness. He leads us and guides us for his name's sake. He frees us from the net that is secretly set for us. He is our refuge. And because of that, because of that faithfulness, because he is so dependable, so trustworthy, we entrust our spirit to him. And he is the God of truth. He's our rock and fortress. He's always there and true. We don't have to doubt him. Even in our suffering, God is faithful. Even in the suffering that we face as Christians, God is faithful. But not only that, he says he's our creator. And as creator, there is no limit to his power and ability. As the God who created the universe, there is no limit to God's power and ability. Look at Psalm 147, verse 5. Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. God is vast in power. He has the ability to carry you through your suffering. As you suffer for his name's sake, as you suffer for Christ, God is powerful enough to carry you through that. Peter says, entrust yourself to this faithful creator God while you do what is good. The product of our trust in God is obedience. It is uh, good works. If you really trust him, you will obey him even in the midst of suffering. So we've been building up to this passage for the past several weeks. Peter's been working to get our minds right. As we've been walking through this, he's trying to make sure that we understand the depth of what Christianity really is. That It's not just some piece of our life, but it is the foundation of who we are as people. That when you surrender yourself to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in and makes you into a new creation with new affections with new appetites and you're growing in if, if that's true back the Holy Spirit's going to sanctify you and grow you right and help you to have that Christ-like understanding like we talked about where you are living your life with a focus on living for God's glory 
That's what Christianity looks like. And we've been building up to this moment of getting our minds right to get us focused on what really matters in this life, to set our perspective on living for the glory of God, all so that we can be prepared to hear this truth about godly suffering. I know the idea of suffering is not, it's not really a popular message. Probably not going to turn TV in on and, and get some preacher telling you that God wants you to suffer. But I'm not here to sell you something. That's not the goal of what we do. I have nothing to sell you. I'm just here to tell you what this says and try to convince you that it's worth your life's devotion. I want you to know the truth so that you can count the cost. There is a cost that comes along with devoting your life to Christ. Salvation is free. Not of work, so nobody can boast. Don't misunderstand me. But to truly believe in Jesus is to surrender your life to him. It's to give him everything. To make him the Lord of your life. When we're walking in the spirit, we should expect suffering. Because following Jesus means following Jesus. And where did he go? Where did he go? He went to the cross. Right? Crucifying himself, he laid it all down so that the world could be reconciled back to God. And if you're following Jesus, you should expect suffering. Not only should we expect it, but we rejoice in it because it's how we can identify with Christ. Because it proves to us the authenticity of our faith. So there is no doubt. And because in suffering, it deepens our relationship with God. And I get this whole thing can be overwhelming because we don't like the idea of suffering. Right? We like the idea of padded pews and air conditioning. Right? We like that. But there's... There's a point where we have to really understand and acknowledge the part that faith has in this whole thing. Right? Faith is not just an intellectual belief. Right? It's not just us having this intellectual assent, this intellectual understanding where we say in our minds, yes, Jesus is Lord. That's not faith. Faith is when we surrender ourselves to that intellectual belief. It's when we give ourselves fully to God and say, God, I am yours, whatever you want. Wherever that leads, it's yours. And I think that's the takeaway for us this morning. How much do you trust God? How bought into this whole Christian thing are you really? And I think here's the question I want to pose for us. Is in your life, is there a line? Right? Like, God, I trust you up until this point. Is there a line in your life? God, I'll give it all to you, anything that you want. I'll suffer. I'll do whatever it is up until this point. Let me say something that's going to seem really harsh to you, but it's the truth. If you have a line, Jesus is not your Lord. If you have a line, 
That's not faith. Faith and lordship means there is no line. I know that sounds harsh. It sounds crazy. And many of you right now are trying to roll that back in your head and think, how could this be true? I'm just telling you what the book says. Just telling you what it says because I love you and I don't want you to be bought into some kind of fake Christianity that our culture has created. I want you to be sold out to the real deal, to Jesus, surrender to him, living in this fruitful life that we've been talking about. I want you to experience that. As your path, that's what I want for you. That's what I pray for you. That's what I think about all the time is, is us as a church, us as a body really getting this reality. This is why I wanted you to pray that God would speak to you before we started this. Because I know that my words can't change your heart. But I know that the Spirit can do something awesome in your heart and our hearts together as a church. And I've been praying that God would do that in us. That we would get past this fake Christianity where we feel like we can just be comfortable with a facade of and we're just coming to church and we're doing Bible studies and there's no real like fruit of that. What this is, what Peter's talking about, there's power in it. There's power in it. And I'm so hungry for that. I want that in my life. I want it for your life. I want it for us as a church. My challenge to you is fully surrender to Jesus, even though that means suffering even though it means sacrifice. Why? Because he's worth it. He's worth it. Would you stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? Here in a moment, the band's going to sing a song. We're going to have people standing on the sides that would love to have a conversation with you. In this moment, if you're recognizing that you've never truly given your life to Christ, you've never truly surrendered your heart to Jesus, my hope and my challenge to you is that you would make that decision this morning. My, my hope is that the Holy Spirit is revealing himself to you, revealing the mystery of the gospel to you so that you can understand what this is all about and that you would respond by surrendering your life to Christ. And if that's you and you're ready to do that, and you're, or, you're, or maybe even you have just questions about it, the people that are going to be standing on the sides here, remember, they have lanyards. They would love to talk to you about that. They would love to have a conversation with you about it. We're not going to bring you down front or embarrass you. They'll bring you back and just have a conversation with you. So that's you. Even if you've been in church your whole life, nobody's going to judge you for truly surrendering your life to Christ. That's what we want. That's what we're here for. And so if that's you, grab one of these people by the hand and have a conversation with them and surrender your life to Christ today. And if you have surrendered your life to Christ, you've given him your life, but you recognize that at different points, sometimes you just the devotion is not quite where it needs to be. The flesh is warring against you. You're not walking in the spirit like we've been talking about. Yes, you're alive in the spirit, but walking in the spirit has not always been something that is, is just easy for you, right? You struggle with it truth is we're all struggle with that. I struggle with that. It's because we're not depending on the Spirit. We're not surrendering ourselves to the Spirit and walking in that. And so that's you. You know you're a Christian this morning, but your life doesn't necessarily reflect what we've been talking about. 
I would challenge you that in this moment that you would repent of that and ask God to change your heart. Father God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this challenging yet beautiful word that we see here in 1 Peter where we know the suffering that these people are about to face. In hindsight, we can look back and see all of the things that they had to endure and how they remained steadfast in the gospel. How they endured it through the power of the Spirit. What an encouragement to us 2,000 years later to be able to see that, see that example of how faithful you are and how powerful you are. So God, I pray that that our faith would be like that. That our faith would be real. That we wouldn't be bought into some kind of fake facade that this culture has created, but that we would be bought into this true, authentic Christianity, that we would give ourselves to that. God, I pray that in this moment, as your spirit is leading, that people will choose to surrender to that leading and that you would be glorified in this time. In your name we pray. Thank you so much for listening. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.